everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And, and my, my trowel. trowel. Hi, you're listening to episode eight of And My Trowel, where we look at the fantastic side of archaeology and the archaeological side of fantasy. I'm Tilly. And I'm Ash. And today we are going to be talking all about time travel, which, first of all, most important question, would you actually want to travel back in time, Ash? Oh, uh, see, this is a really difficult one because I think we as archaeologists get this question a lot. Mm -hmm. Which um, era would you like to travel back to? And I would... But there's two ways I'd have to do it. And it would be either I would have to be in a bubble and no one could see me, so I wouldn't be burnt as a witch. Uh, like fly <laughs> on the wall kind of thing, almost. Oh. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, I'm just sort of there, you know, I can see everything. I can't, and people can't interact with me, but I can interact with everything. Mm. Or I'd have to go to a time and place that would be, like, quite, you know, safe yeah. <laughs> to travel back to. That being said, though, I would always like to go back to the Mesolithic Scotland. And I know that sounds strange because I don't know what it would be like, but I would just like to see what their hair was like oh. and like their culture and their customs and the clothing and stuff. So if I could be in the bubble, I would go back there. Yeah. yeah, fair enough, fair enough. So pure practically minded in, in, in that respect. Practically but minded, yes. <laughs> well, and the nice thing is, so, I mean, you have been a guest on my other podcast, Tea Break Time Travel, where I always ask yes. the guests this very question, where do you want to travel back in time to? And what I really find interesting is that all of the archaeologists that I've had on have always said pretty similar stuff in terms of 
like I I don't know what I was necessarily expecting when I set up that question, but I was always imagining people would be like, I want to go back and see the building of the Colosseum or I want to see the crowning of King George or, you know, something like that. But it's always something like you said, like, no, I just want to go back and like see how people lived and like see their everyday life, which yeah. I find quite interesting. Yeah, definitely. I think I'd like to know what people's names were and what type of names they had as well. Because, like, that's one thing that we can never find out in archaeology, mm. usually in prehistory anyway. Like, I remember I was on a kissed burial and I was like, I wonder what this person's name was. Like, did they? Ha- what was their name? What did they do? What was the last thing that they saw? Like, stuff like that, rather than, oh, well, go and see, you know, the burning of Alexandria <laughs> and, you know, all that kind of stuff, or like the, the seven wonders of the world. I think that's, yeah, archaeologists, were, but that's what we're interested in, aren't we? We're interested in everyday activity. Um, yeah, well, not the big things. stories. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think. And maybe uh, go see, like, Maybe if I was thinking about it, I might go in like to Brodga in Orkney and I might see like, you know, the, the Stones of Stenness or the uh, Ring of Brodga being like erected and seeing how they did that and kind of debunk some stuff. That's, <laughs> I think that I mean, would be fun. That would be a fun thing. I actually just recorded my December episode for Tea Break Time Jam. I'm going to do a mini plug here because uh-huh. I asked my guest and she was talking about someone who is basically going to be the first potential first empress of Japan and she would want to go back and see her because apparently there's like a lot of debate about whether she actually exists or anything and we were saying it would be really great to go back and then like have her write on a piece of stone you know yes I was here you know <laughs> or like make a little a little time capsule <laughs> like for the future archaeologist with a little like selfie and stuff like. yeah <laughs> so indeed that could be a really nice way of debunking myths although I guess people would then be like but you have affected the time well, if I was in a bubble and nobody could interact with me and I was just watching, then right, fine, yeah, right? yeah, just take photos. Yeah, 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 I think that's a good idea. Yeah, there was exactly. actually a very interesting yeah. another. We're, we're plugging all the shows on the APN today because uh, the recent episode <laughs> of the Archaeology Show, some point last mm-hmm. month, also talked all about time travel. So, and they went into full on discussion about like what the rules of time travel are and everything, which. I'm just saying we're probably not going to go back into it today <laughs> because that would take a whole episode, I think. <laughs> but uh, so let's let's assume that we're doing something similar-ish to to what Ash is mentioning. But yeah, so I so I want you to imagine, therefore, that you haven't travelled back in time yourself. Unfortunately, funding didn't allow you to also be on the team, but you, some of your colleagues have, and they've brought back with them a bunch of different objects. Which, first of all. I know what you're thinking. What? Like, why would they do that? Because, you know, you're affecting time scales and all of this kind of stuff. Um, So this, I have taken inspiration today from a book, which we read actually, I think it was one of the first books we read Mm -hmm. with the Archeo Book Club, which uh, I'm not going to ask Ash what she thought about it because (laughs) I think it was a more (laughs) negative review than, than my experience of it, which was Just One Damn Thing After Another by Jodie Taylor. Um, which is the first of the Chronicles of St. Mary's books. And spoiler alert, therefore, for everyone who hasn't read it, it's about time travel. It's basically practical time travel. So it's sort of a a department of a university that actually has little time travel pods and capsules and everything. And all sorts of shenanigans and adventures ensue. But at some point in the first book, and again, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, they work out. So one of the rules of the time travel is that you can't take anything back with you because it won't actually, it'll, it'll be destroyed in the process. Like it, it, it won't survive 
the journey. You can go there and back because you're from the future, but you can't take something from the past and bring it forward to the future. Makes sense, right? Because they'll die or something. I don't know. But one thing that they did work out is that you could take something if it was going to be destroyed in the past. So something that wouldn't have survived anyway, you can bring it forward and then it will survive. It's this whole complicated thing. It turns out there's like a burning pine comb. Anyway, so they they go to the they decide to go to the Library of Alexandria actually, which Ash mentioned before, and try to rescue as many of the burnt manuscripts as they possibly can and sort sort something out in that way. So this is what's happened in this case. Let's say that <laughs> they've brought back <laughs> objects that you know can be brought back, or you know I don't know. Basically, they've brought back objects that it's totally fine and it falls within the rules of whatever time travel thing you want to do. So, first of all, as we are talking about fantasy, fantasy fiction in this case, and the sort of the books uh, surrounding it, have you read any books that feature time travel, Ash? Oh gosh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's a few. I mean, you've got H.G. Wells, The Time Machine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've got um, one of my favorite books, actually, the series is by Deborah Harkness, and it's the All Souls series and the second book is Shadow of Night and they go back to Elizabethan England <gasps> in London really? and she's a historian who writes it herself and it's very well done I mean it's, it's you know fantasy elements vampires and witches and demons and stuff but it's fantastic you really feel the past and it really evokes the past and it's very very cool very oh, cool and I they do kind of interrupt the past as well so oh good interesting yeah, there's also there's a very cool series that i started which i need to get back into actually called the uh what's it called the history of dodo yeah. which is all about this department which works out how to travel in time in that respect and this sort of but how it's about all the ethics of it and all the morals surrounding it and all that kind of stuff which is also quite interesting you like books that have like departments that are like i know right <laughs> i was just thinking about that i was like what sounds that one's more of a like a secret government agency type thing rather than oh, like right. an established thing <laughs> and it involves like witches yeah. and uh, there's all sorts of things it's it's a cool one actually it's very cool i need to reread it because i haven't read it for ages and of course guess who also wrote about time travel ash uh you (laughs) (laughs) i don't actually know if i have written about time travel terry pratchett (laughs) that was my second guess (laughs) (laughs) so of course there's a discworld book that features time travel as well there's actually a couple there's a thief of time and there's also the night watch where commander vimes goes back in time and meets his younger self which is also very interesting interesting yeah but isn't that gonna like a does not destroy the world well so it's this whole it turns out that like okay spoiler alert for, for night watcher by terry pratchett it turns out that like he was already there you know like the uh, what his happen? his mentor was him like it, it, it's this whole thing although it's still a bit unclear to me whether in fact that was the case or whether it was just that like the he became the mentor but there had been someone else that anyway i don't know it's yeah but uh, yeah well that's um, the thing does he not remember that he was his own mentor yeah this is the question so it's all it, it, then it all gets called and i think terry pressure makes a bit of fun of that as well about the whole thing of you know <laughs> remembering things and, and all of that kind of stuff but yeah it's interesting to see especially from sort of the old classic like you mentioned hg wells and the kind of mm-hmm that that time travel idea and then indeed it's just developed so much there's so much almost lore around yes. time travel as like a fantasy concept i mean 
there's so many discussions even about moving away from books, but, you know, things like Back to the Future and sort of like, but that well, wouldn't work. And yeah, and Timeline, have you yeah. ever read or, see, or seen? <laughs> I have not, but I have heard a lot oh. about it. <laughs> yeah, that has a lot of concepts in it because it's like, you know, archaeologists that go back to medieval France and kind of interrupt the timeline. And it's all nefarious and like government stuff. And the book's much more detailed on the science than the than the film is. <laughs> the film's just Jared Butler and Paul Walker and Billy Connolly just running around medieval France. I mean, that sounds amazing. <laughs> it, it is amazing. <laughs> I would definitely recommend watching it, especially if you want something that's just like a fun romp through yeah. time. But that that they have a lot of concept around what you can and can't do in the past. And clearly lots of things in that. Do, do happen and impact the future and stuff and you can come back from the past but you can only do it so many times and then your organs start to like move around <gasps> and you get like, chopped up a bit oh god um, yeah <laughs> so you can only go back so many times as well so yeah there's some interesting concept about time travel um, oh, and yeah. how people interact with the past in the past it's quite yeah cool. <laughs> and i mean from an archaeological perspective i guess you could say, well, of course, you know, I, I suppose to me, the initial reaction would be, well, no, you shouldn't go and you shouldn't interfere with the past. And, you know, that would be immoral and wrong and kind of that wouldn't work. But would you agree with that? Or would you be of the the devil's advocate opinion? <laughs> I don't really know. Uh, I think perhaps you shouldn't meddle, but then I'm a bit chaotic. Good. So like, <laughs> I probably would <laughs> just to see <laughs> see what happens you know <laughs> you yeah. never know but then you might come back and like I don't know you're there was there's a film as well that's about time travel it's nothing to do with archaeology they travel within their own timeline as well oh. um which is was it one oh what was that film well there's like the time traveler's wife and stuff like that right as well yeah, yeah. Oh, I can't remember it's like a love story one. Oh man it's going to really annoy me now. But basically he travels back past his daughter's birth. And then when he comes back, spoiler. <laughs> spoiler for this random thing. That we don't actually know. <laughs> it's like one love. I can't remember. And basically it turns out that actually it's his, it turns into a son. His daughter is no longer, doesn't exist anymore. And now he has a son. And it's because he traveled past her birth and her like conception so it means that it completely changes uh, time yeah oh man yeah which yeah which is this all i mean that gets into all sorts of other ethical debates and everything right of like yeah probabilities of things and and yeah what exactly. what would have changed and whew, anyway but and also then from an archaeological perspective you you have this situation you're you're in your office your colleagues have come in with this big box, looking pleased with themselves, dumped it on your desk and said, ha, look what we have here and start bringing out all kinds of objects. As an archaeologist and as a material specialist, what do you think would be your approach to this particular scenario? Just sort of first initial thoughts, shall we say? Oh my God, what have you done? <laughs> <laughs> Why have you done that? What are you talking about? I mean, fair, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it changes the context of it. It changes the information you can get from it. There's other information you could get. So I'd probably go through all the horrible, the pessimistic stuff first um, and be like, well, we now we can't date it properly. Mm -hmm. we, we don't know 
we can look at well the one, one of the good things would be that you can really look at it and see how it was fully made it depends on what the object is as well hmm. so there would be no corrosion there would probably if it was True. a pot it would be you know nice yes <laughs> and, well, um, you wouldn't have to sit there and figure out which piece goes together and yeah. but you couldn't do the kind of more chemical analysis and stuff that would be really difficult to do i should imagine so I would go through all the terrible stuff first and then I'd try to figure out what we can what information we can get from an object. Huh. Which indeed I hadn't even, to be honest, considered that. <laughs> that idea of of removing it from the context because and you will have more experience of this as a kind of more experienced field archaeologist, Ash, that how important the context is to actually being able to interpret the objects. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, if you're finding an object within a certain context in a layer, a stratigraphic layer, then it tells you more than what the object's going to tell you a lot of the time too. So it could be that you're in an organic layer, it could be that it's a settlement layer, and then you're finding other stuff that's backing up, so the charcoal, what they were eating, maybe the seeds in there. You know, I'm just thinking prehistoric stuff, because that's yeah. my go-to. <laughs> I mean, yeah, fair. Yeah. <laughs> or you find like a big hoard of something as well. And you're seeing the different cuts throughout that feature too. So there could be like drift. Um, there could be they've cut a secondary pit into this pit for some reason and deposited something there. And so you're seeing layers of time over and over and over again. So if you, if you've removed the object from even creating that context in the first place, say you you go back to Naples just before the first eruption of Vesuvius and you move a pot that was there at one point, you know, um, and you take it back to the future, then that pot's not going to be there when you excavate it. So we're not going to, we're going to lose that context, but then we've got other contexts in the fact that you've brought it back to the future. So now you can look at it as an object, just an object rather than a larger complex of a settlement. So it, it's, well, yeah. So you'd have to make really detailed notes, like when yes. you were there. So you yes. almost, you have the, the context before it becomes a context. <laughs> yeah, you, you would have to like basically do your archaeological recording instead of on a site where you've t- taken away some layers. You would you would have to do it on the site while wow. someone's presumably in the kitchen cooking. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> like right. one of those uh, street vendors. Like Yeah, no. the floor is made of this yeah. and this is the thing and there's someone yeah. eating a falafel next to me and there's, yeah, yeah, and there's graffiti like... that says such and such was here. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Here. And yeah, so that would be really difficult to try and tell someone who is, you know, from uh, Naples or Pompeii, why have I got this big camera? <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, so that's why you would need the bubble rather than... Yeah, <laughs> Bubble, so nobody could see you or bump into you and be like, oh, what the hell is that? You know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that that's, that's fair. Well, so hopefully your colleagues have indeed taken a lot of notes and that's actually at the bottom of the thing. They're just so excited to show you these objects that they, they forgot to show you the thick wads of paper and photographs and <laughs> everything that they did as well. But of course, what issue... You samples? But of course, one issue is how much do you trust your colleagues? How do you know that these objects are indeed from the past? Which we'll get into more detail on that in a second. Let me just consult my scrolls here and we'll be back with you soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, everyone. So I had a little look through the scrolls because before the break, we came up with a potential issue in that our colleagues, while they're very nice, maybe they're not particularly trustworthy. And how can we tell for sure whether this stuff that they claim to have brought back from the past is indeed from the past and not just something that they've knocked up at a shop along the corner? So after having looked through the scrolls, I have come up with a couple of different ideas, but I was wondering, Ash, if you had any ideas, first off, off the top of your head, that you might be able to apply to this material <laughs> to have a look. Well, what kind of stuff have they brought back? What, what objects, what artifacts have they brought back? So they have, for example, a lovely uh, wooden statue, which would never have survived in the archaeological record because wood very rarely preserves um, from this particular time period. It's from allegedly a Neolithic settlement. Of Scotland. So, you know, maybe it could have survived, I guess, in certain conditions, but probably not. So that's why they decided to bring it back with them. It's a little, a little carving of a, a figure of some sort made from wood. They also have, I'm just checking what my other things are. <laughs> um, they also have uh, another statue. They were on a sort of statue, statue mission, it seems, uh, because they have another statue. But this one comes from the Mediterranean, allegedly from ancient Greece, which is a lovely little marble statue of some kind of goddess or god when unsure exactly which one it is at this particular moment in time. And what else do we have? We also have a little picture, which is from significantly more recent. This was brought back from kind of late medieval period, um, but it's a little painted picture also of a figure, but it's sort of very artistically painted. So it's hard to tell exactly who this figure might be. So those are the kind of three main objects that that I would say would stand out at you yeah, in this respect. Okay, so the wood, I would think maybe you could look at the type of wood that it's made out of. I'm thinking the Balhulish figure. That's immediate, immediately what I thought of. I think that's about the wood. About the wood. The Balhulish figure. Oh, tell me more. Uh, well, that comes from it's a, a female carving, they think anyway. It, but it dates from about 600 BCE. And it was found in Balhulish in Scotland. <laughs> um, and it immediately, that's what immediately what I thought. So I thought maybe you could look at the type of wood it was and if mm. that tree even grows in that area at the time, Good what point. the landscape was, so that you could maybe look at that. Obviously, if you were doing, when we talked about dendrochronology, but that's quite difficult if you've literally taken a tree <laughs> in a time period. Right, yeah. The... The other one was a painting too. There was a painting. Mm. There's a little painting? A little marble statue. A little marble statue. So the painting, you could look at the pigments and what Mm -hmm. are they made out of. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is, well, you can still perhaps make these, but if there's a certain species of beetle, maybe that they (laughs) flew from or something, that's no longer available or something. That's what I would go for immediately, trying to kind of 
look at what was around in the landscape, the type of species of trees and what kind of rock is there, what kind of wood is there for each mm-hmm. one and try and kind of place it within that context first. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what I would go for. But it would be really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> It would, and I guess that it would. Ha, ha, ha. Sorry, that was a really bad pun. Um, <laughs> so funny, so, so funny. Um, sorry, everyone. As you can probably hear, both Ash and I are recovering from from cough, so I think the, the uh, we're still slightly delirious from from, from our illnesses. But uh, so, I indeed, according to the scrolls, quite a lot of those ideas would indeed be uh, be very useful to have a look. So for example, looking at the the material or the content. So obviously indeed, if if a wooden artifact was made from a tree and that particular tree did not grow in Scotland at that time, then you could pretty much say, nah. <laughs> like or I guess alternatively that they could claim, oh, it was, you know, carved elsewhere and then traded. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Mm-hmm. And I mean how again from I'm I'm using all your knowledge as a field archaeologist, Ash, how do you actually know what kind of trees, like what the landscape looked like in the past and what kind of trees were there, etc.? Well, there's, this is not necessarily field stuff. I mean, mm. it's more... land. Well, you could look at like landscape archaeology. You can look at the what you know from records, from archaeological, other archaeological mm. investigations of what wood was around, what they were making stuff out of, especially if you're using or going to a site that's anaerobic. So, you you know, peat, any kind of figure, especially like Brock sites are quite good for them. If I think Clactol Brock in Scotland was very good for finding a lot of organic matter, wood, mm. wooden bowls, wooden beams, platforms, panels, wood carving work as well. Anywhere that basically doesn't have any air. You can look at what's going on there. You can look at climate change over the period as well. We know that from the Mesolithic, pretty much because of the Sturega slide, which was a big underwater earthquake and caused a mass tsunami around the world and would have hit in the Mesolithic and you wouldn't have had a clue what was coming. I always think about those poor people. On this question, of course, Scotland and like Keith Ness and stuff, they would have oh. been completely exposed. Yeah. <laughs> and so you can look at that and you, we know that from that point, um, the sea levels sort of rise. So you can look at where the site is. Would it be underwater? Where it wouldn't? Is it moved? Is it shifted? Erosion? So it's a lot of stuff about that and looking at the landscape, but um, mm-hmm. that's mostly to do if you're on the field, you know, for a field archaeologist, mostly if it's already sort of done for you in some ways, mm. because you turn up and you're like, especially if you're working commercial archaeology, then it's already kind of, you've got this field and you need to figure it out. So you look at the soil that you have. If you have sand, it's usually because it was a, a beach site of some time uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just moved inland. Look at the especially if there's graves the context of what's in them shells and stuff like that as well so yeah there's lots of different stuff <laughs> yeah, yeah. well actually if people are interested in hearing more about for example the post-excavation stuff and bioarchaeological things you can do to work out things listen to our last couple of episodes because we had yeah. a specialist bioarchaeologist jen mm-hmm. who uh, talks a little bit about uh, about that kind of thing i think if i remember correctly <laughs> It's, it's, no, it's only been a few weeks. Does, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah she, she absolutely does. She's uh, an archaeobotanist. Archaeobotanist—that's the word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so. she looks at lots of different organic matters as well. 
Um, yeah. I've seen her a few times counting hazelnuts and lots of different <laughs> seeds. But indeed, so so you know, materials that would not have been there. Um, so, for example, wood, different kinds of soil types. Maybe for something like pottery, you might be able to see what kind of soil was used or anything. Yeah. You also have. For example, you mentioned the painting. So there's lots and lots of famous examples of paintings being discovered as fakes because, for mm. example, one of the paints was made from the wrong chemical component that actually was only introduced to painting, you know, two centuries later or something, which uh, do you happen to remember? I don't know if you did that. It's part of your, I, I had a whole thing about artifact analysis. Do you know of any techniques or methods or anal- analysis things that uh, can be used to look at chemical components? What you mean, like the chemical component of like carbon, <laughs> or you mean in, in painting? Actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can look at lots of different chemical components. I mean, I'm not. Uh, I'm more the artsy side. Do <laughs> <laughs> sure, you do have a different kind of chemical? <laughs> well, so you have a couple of different methods you could use to look at various kinds of kind of chemical components, indeed, and to see what what. The material is actually made of. So you have invasive methods, aka things that will destroy part of the artifact, and you have non-invasive methods. So the the most common ones that I sort of found and uh, read up about was, for example, X-ray fluorescence, where you have uh, an object is bombarded with X-rays. That then makes the material react and emit a secondary X-ray, like a bounce-back thing, which is known as fluorescence. And then by measuring those secondary X-rays, you can work out the radiation of the atoms and therefore work backwards a little bit using your lovely periodic table to work out what elements they are. And therefore you can see the chemical composition of the material. So it's almost a bit like, I don't know if you've seen those videos or if you've experienced yourself, you know, bioluminescence. So when you splash water and then it lights up and everything, it's sort of ish similar. So you kind of create creating a reaction that then gives something back, which means that basically you just have to point something at the painting and and it, measures it and that's quite nice you can also destroy part of the painting and by destroy i mean like minimal like millimeter wide you know things for example there's mass spectrometry which again there seems to be a lot of bombarding going on in (laughs) in these uh, methods because again you bombard the uh the sample uh, you ionize it by bombarding it with electrons so therefore the ion which is an electrified atom bounces around all over the place. You can measure them through that and work out from the mass to charge ratio. You can then see how much they weighed before the ionization. And then again, work backwards with your periodic table to see what element they represent. And so the chemical composition. So it's basically a lot of, you have to know all of the, like all of the little equations and all of the measurements beforehand. So you can sort of work backwards, but it's there's quite a lot of different ways of, of doing that and of, of working out these things, which are quite useful. Another point I wanted to point out about the materials and content is that sometimes written content as well. I mm. found some cool examples about fakes, which had been written, and then it, they found out they were fakes because the author knew something that they couldn't have known at that point in time, which, yeah, maybe they were time travelers and they came in forward into the future. That's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> So that was quite cool. So indeed, materials and content. I have two other potential points to look at. I don't know if you could guess either of them. Well, I think you would probably look at the style, mm-hmm. especially if it's like the marble carving, because that's quite hard to, to date. So stylistically, um, you'd look at it. But also I would look at, again, if there's any, well, especially if it's a Greek statue or a sculpture, because usually they're painted, but we just don't see that. 
True. So you would look at the pigmentation, I think. Uh You could do Uh some pigment um, samples and some chemical analysis on that. Again, similar to the painting. Um, Uh You would look at the style of it. So what kind of style is it? Uh it, There's lots of different Greek styles that they, we often think of it just as like the one. Yeah. Uh But there's lots of different ones that come from different areas. So you could look at that as well and kind of figure out that. And you could also, I mean, for the wood, you could do carbon, but the carbon dating wouldn't work because of the half-life. That's a good point. Which do you, are you able to talk a little bit more about that? Do you want me to talk about that with my notes from my thing? Or are you, able, are you happy to talk about that? I'm fine to talk about radiocarbon dating. <laughs> so essentially everything that is living has carbon. We have a constant supply of carbon. We do wood cows <laughs> everything has a half-life so basically when we die every single year it sort of halves essentially i believe yes exactly so the half you have this half-life and carbon 14 i should also just point out is a radioactive isotope of carbon aka just a slightly more excited version um, of, of the carbon atom and we know this rate of decay so again it's just like the things the the methods that we talked about before we know from for example scientific experiments in in other forms of scientific analysis like physics and chemistry and things we've worked out what the half-life is we've worked out the decay equation so you can also measure backwards to work out when carbon stopped being produced by an object which one might assume is when that thing died. (laughs) Like that's the kind of general idea. But like you say, Ash, that is something difficult actually to do Mm -hmm. with the wood object because it technically, it's been brought forward in time. So dating is actually something really difficult to do. Yeah, it wouldn't have decayed over that amount of time. So we don't know its half-life. We don't, we can't date it. We would actually just date it to our time yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. um so yeah that'd be really difficult to do yeah no that's a very good point so indeed so you can't look at age Mm -hmm. you can look at materials and content and i like that you mentioned style and i have a fun fact to share because there was a fragment of an ancient greek statue of aphrodite which was discovered to be a fake because it did not conform to certain stylistic elements and those elements are the breasts were too saggy which (laughs) is was very realistic for like the person who was being depicted. But in ancient Greece, they always depicted the idealized form. So therefore it didn't fit <laughs> with that idea, which I just love that someone looking at the, someone carving was, you know, trying to be like, yes, I'm going to depict the female form as it really is. And, you know, and then everyone, the scholars were like, nope, it's sorry. They're too realistic. It's too yeah, saggy. Unrealistic body can like conform. <laughs> you know, exactly. it's not great. <laughs> And another fun fact is there's some forgeries that were already forged in antiquity. So it might be indeed that your colleagues have brought something forward, but that is genuinely from that time period, but it's also a forgery. (laughs) So there's a a statue that's currently on display in the Louvre. It's called the Richelieu Venus. I apologize for my butchering of the French language, which has an engraving on the pedestal saying 4th century BCE Greek master Praxiteles. However, when it's been dated, it's been dated to the 2nd century AD. So actually 400 years later, uh, 200 years later, I mean, no, 400 years later, sorry, AD, BC. So one suggestion that's been made is that there was an ancient sculptor from the 2nd century AD that decided to add this little engraving to the bottom, either to sort of associate himself, you know, with this Greek master Praxiteles carver, or to try 
and pass it off as a forgery. Another suggestion is that it was actually added much later in like the 15th century to try and pass it off as something that was older than it was. But anyway, but I quite like that idea of an ancient Greek carver being like, oh, let's just make this yeah. even older. Than it a Dell boy. <laughs> exactly. Wheeler dealer. <laughs> but yes, I don't know if you had any any other thoughts, but I think that that was a, I think that that's a pretty good way to see you've got you've got some good good techniques that you can use to check whether indeed these these objects that your colleagues have brought back are indeed actually from the time period that they've uh, yeah that they've come yeah. from. And I suppose that's that would just reaffirm my initial <laughs> what we've <have you> done <laughs> because context is so important. Yeah. So important. Yeah. I think people a lot of people don't realize that. So yeah, I'd be I'd still be fairly annoyed. <laughs> it'd be very cool, but it'd be very annoying at the same time. <laughs> they would definitely have to have made detailed notes. So anyone who wants yeah. to travel back in time and bring forward objects, make don't sure to it. take your camera with you and make notes if you're going to do it, but don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I'd look at that big wad of a folder that they had and I'd be right, let's have a look at this before we go any further. Yes, true, true. Yeah, yeah, there you go, there you go. Well, I think that that was then a yeah, slightly frustrating uh, interaction with colleagues, but I would say a fairly successful one. <laughs> and I think that that's also about it for time for this episode of And My Trial. We hope that you enjoyed this little mini quest into the past, quite literally. If there's any suggestions that people have for episodes, maybe you've read a fantasy book and been inspired. Maybe there's an archaeological concept or analytical method that you don't quite understand. And maybe we could explain it through fantasy or something in a book that you want to find out from an archaeological viewpoint. Get in contact via email or social media. All of our contact info, as well as references and further reading, can be found in the show notes. Also, don't forget, we are part of a broader network, the Archaeology Podcast Network, where other hosts such as ourselves try to share our passion and our love for archaeology with the world. If you want to help support us as a network, you can become a member. Check out the Archaeology Podcast Network homepage for more information on that. Tilly, do you smell burning? Oh, wait, is that smoke on the horizon? Oh boy, I I think we might need some help again with this next quest. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.